What a blessing that is. Uh, thank you, Swanson family and, and others. You know, everybody that I know, that I, that I talk to, seems to love a good underdog story. When I was growing up, this was a cartoon. This is like older than me, uh, but this is underdog, right? Uh, uh, everybody loves an underdog story or the underdog story. The, the film industry has made many successful movies throughout the years based on the underdog. Uh, in case you don't know what I'm talking about, the underdog is, is the one that's the most least expected. I guess that's a conundrum there. The least expected to win. Right? That's an underdog. Uh, here's just a few examples in the film industry of underdog stories. We have the karate kid. Right? Wax on, wax off. Right? Underdog story. We have uh, the real life story of the miracle on ice. Right? Where the, you have the college students uh, playing for the national hockey team. Uh, you know, they're not professional players going against professional players from other countries, and they end up winning gold. Underdog story. Or possibly one of the most notorious underdog stories, Rocky. I haven't met anyone who doesn't get even the little bit excited to see an underdog win. I realize that this might be part of my sickness for being such a Browns fan all my life. Um, it's a sickness, I guess. But any student of the Bible could tell you that the Bible is full of underdog stories. For example, we have Moses and Pharaoh, underdog. We have Daniel in Babylon, underdog story. And probably most notorious, and when I said Bible underdog stories, you probably thought David and Goliath. The reality is the Bible is packed full of underdog stories. As both a, a youth pastor and now as a senior pastor, I have heard some version of this statement from those who follow Jesus. I'm too young. I'm too old. I'm not educated enough. I'm too new to this. We're too small of a church. We can't compete with the big church. Some version of this plays in our mind when we think about following Jesus. And the reality is there is some truth to these statements. There is some truth we live in a culture today where the small church often gets overlooked as not important to the kingdom of God because after all, we're small compared to the megachurch down the road. And this can be discouraging for some. I want to encourage you this morning that God is for the underdogs. All throughout scripture, we see God using the underdog and big miraculous kingdom ways and we ought not to be discouraged either personally or corporately for these things of being what we perceive as being the underdog 
Because God uses the little guy, even the little church, to accomplish great kingdom tasks all of the time. If you don't believe me, I encourage you to open your Bibles to Judges 7, where we will be studying this morning. Because this morning, we're going to be reading and studying an incredible underdog story this morning. So I encourage you, whether you have your own Bible, if you don't have your own Bible, I encourage you to have, you know, they are scattered around the room in the chairs. I encourage you to have God's word open as we uh, work through his word this morning to see what he has. With the word open, let us uh, seek the Lord in prayer this morning. Jesus, we're so thankful We're so thankful that you have called us this day into this place to worship you. Lord, I pray that as we have your word open, we would continue to have a posture of worship towards you. That this wouldn't just be a a menial task to check off a list, Lord, but that this would be devotion to you, to understand you to understand what you would say to us, Lord, that we might be transformed by your word. Lord, I pray that all who are here with your word open receiving this message this morning would receive in a way and a posture of worship that would allow your Holy Spirit to transform us from the inside out. I pray that all that would listen to this later in the week, Lord, through our Spotify channel, Lord, would as well be transformed by your word. We know that wherever your word goes, it does not return void. Lord, we trust you. So, Lord, we we come before you humbly and ask that you would take over, that you would lead this time. It's in your name we pray. Amen. As I said, we're, we're going to be in Judges chapter 7, and we are going to cover all of chapter 7 because it's all part of one big story, um, and so it's going to be kind of broken up into a couple different chunks. Let's, let's read the first eight verses together. I'll be reading out of my English Standard Version, and you can read along in yours, um, and then we'll go from there. So chapter 7, verse 1 says, then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, And all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, This one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink, and the number of, uh, and the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord s- said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand, and let all the others go every man to his home. 
So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel away to his tent, but retained the 300 men, and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. We see here in this, in this opening verses a divine loss or divine losses. See, Gideon had amassed uh, an army of 32,000 men. Um, now, he, he knew he was up against it with the Midianite army because it was the Midianite, Malachites, and all the people of the east. As we've been studying through uh, the book of Judges, we, we know kind of where we're at in the story. And we know that Gideon has just tested the Lord with the fleece to, to confirm and reconfirm that God is with him in this. And Gideon amasses this army because he's trusting the Lord that he is supposed to go into this. And so he raises an army of 32,000 men. At which point we go, wow, that's pretty impressive. That, that's a good size army. And God could do a lot with that size army. But God says, that's too many. That's too many. Too many people. And I have to think, like, if I'm getting, I'm thinking, like, what do you mean that's too many people? Like, you see the army that we're going to be going up against. How can this be too many? I don't feel like I have enough. Ever feel that way in ministry? Ever feel like, Lord, you're asking me to do something and, you, and, and, and trust you, and yet I don't feel like I'm there yet. That's got to be how Gideon's feeling right now. And so God says, people are too many. Let the ones who are fearful leave. I think if you're Gideon, you're kind of like going, okay, I got some good men with me. Maybe I lose 100 men. No, 22,000 men leave in fear. This comes to 68% of the force of men, 68% loss for Gideon to go into battle. That has to be demoralizing. <laughs> that has to make Gideon go, ah, you guys are all in fear. I'm in fear too, but like, don't leave me. We see that God says, I don't want Israel to boast over me saying, I was able to save Israel. God, through his divine process, made sure that Israel was getting to the place of feeling like an underdog, where they, there was going to be this desperate dependence on God to show up. And Gideon might have been like, okay, 10,000, yeah, I'm, God, I desperately need you. But God says, no, there's still too many of you. And even though 10,000 men still stay, 6,700 men kneel down to drink water from the river, leaving only 300 men. I'm not a mathematician, but this is kind of simple math for me. Uh, Bornwell, I guess you could check this later. But 300 out of, you know, the original number is less than 1% of the original force, 0.94%. Tell me how you're feeling at this point. You're Gideon, you've just lost 99% of your force to go to battle. God says, everyone who laps the water like a dog. Now, I read some commentaries, and, and apparently there's some people who will take the, this section of scripture to say, you know, those who lap water like a dog are doing it the right way, and those who are kneeling down are doing it the wrong way. I don't think that's really what this is about. I think the Lord was using a divine process to get to the number he was planning on getting to. 
I think, you know, when, when Gideon sees the two sets of people, the 300 and the 6,700, in his heart, he's probably going, okay, I got 6,700 men. And God goes, nope, I want the smaller group of men. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we probably have to be thinking if we're Gideon, Lord, what have you just done to my army? What have you just done to my army? There's no way 300 of us could take on the Midianites. And as a small church, or if if you're too young, too old, all of those things, uh, all of those complaints, all of those fears that were mentioned before, if we struggle with those, this is kind of how we're feeling. But notice how the Israelites respond. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets And he sent the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. They respond. They respond to this this divine testing, this divine loss that the Lord prompted. And, you know, I've heard it said one time that not all loss is bad loss. And sometimes we can feel like even one person leaving is detrimental. But God, God orchestrates things all of the time that we don't understand and we don't see, the, the, we, we don't wrap our heads around it, but we have to trust that he is in control and that he will use that loss for his glory. We see here in the next section, verses 9 to 18, God extends grace to Gideon. Would you read with me, starting in verse 9? That same night, so meaning right after the army has been completely brought down to 300 from 32,000, that same night, the Lord said to Gideon, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, And you shall hear what they say. And afterward, your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. They went down with Pura. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. We see God extend grace to to Gideon to say, if you're still fearful, if you're still concerned, go down to the camp. So Gideon gets up with his servant, and he goes down to the camp. And he sees this massive army that is recorded as locusts in abundance. A couple weeks back, we, we showed you what that looks like locust swarms and how much how many locusts can be in such a small space this is no small army and i think if you're gideon and pura at this point you start going "Ah, okay lord like we're severely outnumbered and you might be going okay well how is this grace to gideon well we got to keep reading So 
Gideon and Pura, they're, they're on their way down the hill into the valley where the, the Midianites, Amalekites, and the people of the east are camped. Gideon sees the vast number of the army, and he continues. Verse 13, when Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. So Gideon goes down and, and he overhears this dream, right? We remember Gideon's lost 99% of his army, but God graciously reveals to him through this dream that, that this, this guy shares with his comrade that God, Yahweh, is with Gideon. Think about it. How in the world did this comrade even know who Gideon is? Or that he's the son of Joash, for that matter. These are people of the east. God divinely gave a dream to this pagan man that Gideon was coming and that the Yahweh was with them. And so Gideon receives, hears this dream, this dream of barley cakes. There's, there's a lot of significance to this dream. The guy says, behold, I dreamed a dream, and, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned upside down so that the tent lay flat. Barley was the grain for the poorest of the poor. It was the poor man's grain, if you will. Some might argue that it still is. But barley in that time would be considered only the poorest people ate barley. In fact, it's the poorest of the poorest grain, so much so that it was often used for dog or cattle feed. It was insignificant grain. It was like, we, we don't even eat this stuff. We give it to our cattle and our dogs. In other words, Gideon would have heard this, this dream and the interpretation that the, the comrade gave, and, and he would have probably been offended that he was being compared to a barley cake because barley was meaningless. It was, it was, it was trash. And the interpretation, the interpreter says, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. And Gideon and Pura, they overhear the dream and its interpretation. And we see that Gideon is recognized as this barley cake, which would normally have been a humiliating tie to receive and instead of being humiliated by it, and, and uh, that would be like being called something that I'm not going to speak in church, but you can fill in the blanks, right? Being called something absurd that would be very insulting. And instead, Gideon responds with worship at that insult. How many of us respond to, to insults with worship? 
Not many. I don't know that I do. If anything, my initial reaction is to fight back, to get all hot and bothered by an insult. And Gideon had every right to get hot and bothered in this moment by this insult, which is what it was. And instead, he responds with worship. He worships God. Verse 15, as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. He gave God all in reverence. He lifted God, Yahweh. And then he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. He goes back. After he hears this uh, interpretation, understands it, and and worships Yahweh, he realized that God is with him. And he goes back and he shares his testimony. Guys, you can't believe what just happened. You'll never believe what I just heard. God is with us. Let's go. This is testimony. This is the power of a testimony. And I think we, as I alluded to in our announcements, this is why, this is one of the reasons why we're going to start including this koinonia time. Because as believers, as followers of Jesus, we need to get used to sharing what God is doing in our lives amongst the believers. We need to share what God is doing in us, through us, around us, not as a boast, but as an encouragement. Because when we're able to share testimony of what God is doing, there's something that sparks inside of the believer. Because when we see God moving and hear stories of him moving, it's exciting. And it's my experience, we don't do this very well. We don't offer testimony time in service to worship God through testimony. And maybe it happens in pockets here and there, but as the body of Christ and in the church, we need to be encouraging one another. And that's why we're going to be making that change. One of the reasons we'll be making that change. But we see Gideon here, he goes back with this testimony and he shares it with the people, with the 300 men. And, you know, Pura was there too. Pura saw that they were outnumbered. And Pura could have had the opportunity right there to say, guys, we're going to get slaughtered. We are severely outnumbered. But Pura also sees God's hand at work. And they go and share this testimony. And they raise this 300 men. Verse 16. And Gideon divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets in their hands of all of them, and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me, and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp, and shout, For the Lord and for Gideon. We see here in this next section, 19 through 15, a divine victory. 
This is a divine victory because Gideon is victorious in this battle using torches, jars, and trumpets. Continue reading with me, 19 through 25. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. When they had just set the watch, and they blew the trumpets, smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches, and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah towards Zerah, as far as the border of Abel-Meholah by Tabath. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out and they captured the waters as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. We see a divine victory. God uses Gideon and these 300 men. Uh, in case you didn't see the, the imagery there, they, they create three 100s, right? So you got 100 men here, 100 men here, and they surround the camp. And they got a torch in a jar, probably a clay jar, uh, most likely, um, and trumpets. All 300 men somehow have trumpets, a horn. And Gideon says, do what I do, when I do it, do likewise. And so they, they, they pursue and they surround the camp and they smash the jars, making a big clang. They light the torches and they blow the trumpets. And they, and they say, a sword for uh, Gideon, and, or for the Lord and for Gideon, which if you look back to the dream, is exactly what this comrade shared no other than the sword of Gideon. This would have caused confusion and chaos, and so the camp arises to the loud crashes and the loud trumpets. And in my mind, I kind of get this. That, 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 so the army scatters in fear, and they attack one another in their confusion. We see Gideon and his army hasn't even attacked anybody yet. All they did was make a big ruckus and, and shout a sword for the Lord and for Gideon, and the army starts attacking each other. And I kind of got this picture in my mind, though less mortal, of these guys. <laughs> right? Like, I love the Three Stooges, right? Like, classic humor. But like, how many times when you're watching the Three Stooges, do they run around and they're running into each other out of confusion and chaos, right? Like, that's what's happening in the camp. Like, they're, they're terrified They've heard the story, they've heard the dream, and they, and they hear the shouts, a sword for Gideon and for the Lord, and they go, oh no! And they start going, oh, it's you! Oh, yeah, they're, they're going crazy. That's the confusion that's happening that 
God divinely orchestrated with 300 men. So Gideon is victorious using torches, jars, and trumpets. But only God can do that. Only God can do that. We see that the underdog wins the battle. Maybe you struggle to feel significant in God's kingdom from time to time. Maybe you've struggled with, I'm too young, or I'm too old, or I don't have the education, or I don't have the training, or whatever. Maybe you feel defeated. Maybe as a church, we we struggle to compare the missional impact in the kingdom of what we're able to do as a small church to what other churches are doing. My friends, please don't fall into that trap. Maybe you feel inadequately trained, but whatever the case, our God is more than capable of using even the least of us for his purposes. And I think that's what we see in the story of Gideon is that Gideon was willing to be used by God even though he felt like he was the least of his father's household, the, the least tribe in Israel. And though it took some, some earnest seeking of the Lord on Gideon's part to confirm this calling, Gideon was willing to trust God. So the question comes, are you willing Are we willing? Well, pastor, what do you mean, are we willing? Am I willing? Well, are you willing first to trust God? Are you willing to trust that God is in control? That God has plans for us, individually and corporately, to impact our community and the world around us? Are you willing to trust that? Are you willing to take faith-filled risks? Because Gideon sure did. Gideon had to take one of the biggest faith-filled risks of all time. 300 against locusts beyond count. Are we willing to take faith-filled risks to see the kingdom of God advanced? Are you? Are you willing to surrender the fears and the insecurities to a God who says, I don't even look at those. I'm willing to use you if you're just willing. Are we willing to lay down those fears and insecurities and trust God? Al, if you answered yes, then let's get to work. Here's your, here's your charge, church, family. Ask God to bring someone into your life that you can share your testimony with. Ask God to bring someone into your life that you can share hope with. We can see the hopelessness in our community alone. It doesn't take much to see it. Ask God to bring someone across your path that you can share hope with. More importantly, to share the gospel with. We are commanded as followers of Christ to always be prepared to share the hope that resides in us. That is your mission as a follower of Christ, is to be ready to share with non-believers. All of us, not just you, me too. 
Let's get to work. If God can use Gideon with 300 men, torches, jars, and trumpets to defeat a massive army beyond counting, he can certainly use you and me to accomplish great kingdom things too. The question is, are we willing? Are each of us willing? I recently finished a book that I was reading um, by Bill Allison. The book is uh, called The Disciple-Making Genius of Jesus. It's a tongue twister. And uh, it's a great book. It's, it's not very long. Um, it, it has some very practical ways of, of discipleship um, that I found helpful. But at, toward the end of the book, the, the author quotes this pastor, Pastor Glenn Kaiser, who is, uh, I don't know if he's still pastoring or what, but he was in the Chicago area. And I'd like to share the quote with you. I think it's appropriate. Pastor Glenn Kaiser says, You, as a follower of Jesus, have received unmerited love and grace. What that means is that you have received something you have done nothing to earn. You've done nothing to receive it. You don't deserve it. None of us do. He says, You've received unmerited love and grace. Share it. Or, Quit reading, studying, and singing about it. Now, that's harsh. That's hard to hear. That's a hard pill to swallow. But my friends, that's, that's the truth. God has given us unmerited love and grace, and if we're unwilling to share it, we need to really take a hard look at ourselves, individually and corporately. God didn't give us this free gift of grace to hoard it to ourselves. We're to share it with others, with the world. Would you pray with me as we close? Heavenly Father, Lord, I admit I personally struggle at times. I'm too young. I don't have the experience. Lord, I struggle in, I struggle with this particular sin from time to time. Lord, how, how can you use me? Lord, I am so encouraged that all throughout your word, we see story after story after story, how you don't care about any of that. All you care about is if we're willing to say yes and trust you. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for for your body. Thank you for your church. Thank you that even while we were sinners who were rebellious against you, you chose to love us anyway by sending your son in the midst of our rebellion to die on a cross, to take our place, to offer grace that we have done nothing to deserve. Lord, and we have people all around us in our community and all around the world that need that grace. Would you help us, Lord, to refocus, to be a people who are desperately dependent upon you, who 
who fall on our knees before a holy God who is calling us to a task that we just can't do without you. Lord, we need you. Do what only you can do, God. Do what only you can do, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Would you stand for our closing benediction? I'd like to read from Colossians 3 this benediction to you. I I pray that this would be a blessing to us with the challenge that you've received. Church family, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And all who agree would say, amen. Amen. God bless you this week.